Killing for Organs When Are We Alive or Dead? A presentation by Dr. Paul Byrne from the Fatima Center's Path to Peace Conference held at Niagara Falls in September of 2013. It is important to know the truth. Organ harvesting is a multi-million dollar industry. Certain organs, like the heart and liver, have to be removed from living bodies. Therefore, the act of removing such an organ is what actually kills. To legalize this, the term brain dead has been invented. Yet this is a horrific violation of the Fifth Commandment and gravely immoral. Like abortion and euthanasia, this is a clear manifestation of the culture of death. Let us stand for the truth of Christ and share it with everyone we know. Thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, an honor to be here with you. I thank God for letting me be here. Thank Father for letting me be here and all the rest of you. We'll begin with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Hail Mary, full of grace, is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Today, we're going to talk about a subject that affects all of us. Everyone in this room is affected by what I'm going to talk about. It is a life issue, and the life issues are the same no matter when you talk about it, whether it's at the beginning of life or at some other time or stage of life. Life issues are the same. There's truth, and you must learn the truth. You must learn the truth, and I say it like that because you've been kept from hearing the truth in these matters. You're not allowed to know the truth because if you know the truth, you won't participate in what's happening in our society. So what you see on the screen is Joseph. Joseph was born very prematurely. His mother insisted that he was no more than 18 weeks. He was put in an emesis basin and put on a windowsill because no one did anything for him, and his mother noticed that the towel that they put over him moved. She said, well, you have to do something, and they took him to the nursery, gave him no treatment, and when he was still living the next day, then they transferred him to me. We gave him the intensive care that we knew at the time, including the ventilator. Six weeks after he was delivered, he was still on the ventilator, unable to breathe on his own, and a brainwave test was done, and he had flat brainwaves. What's written on his chart is consistent with cerebral death. And then it was suggested to repeat that, which we did, and two days later was still unchanged from the previous one, and then it was suggested to stop his treatment. I said, well, I don't do that. I treat babies. Some live, some die, and I continue to treat him. Well, there's Joseph when he's seven. And there's Joseph when he's married, has two children, and since then they have a, a, 
another child. The point is, and how medicine in some ways is different now than it was then, but what we did then as doctors, when people were the sickest and were the biggest challenge, that's when we tried to figure out how to treat them. Now what happens when people are very sick and a challenge, they put them in hospice or give them palliative care and hurry them off the earth. And so medicine has changed a lot in the 50 years that I've practiced medicine. To deal with these subjects, you must have some foundation. And when I am up here talking, I hope that I'm a teacher. I try to be a teacher because you need to learn the foundation and you need to learn it. I only have a few minutes, but you need to learn these things. I do have books that I've been giving out to some of you who come and I have more out there for you. Those will help. The living person on earth can be seen and known. We see ourselves in the mirror. We can see each other. We know what a living person is. Life is a reality from true conception until true death. And you have to put true in front of those words because conception has been distorted to mean something other than the identification that a new person has arrived on earth. And death is distorted so it means something other than true death. So you must use true death. The life is in every cell. The cell is the basic unit of biology. Cells come together to make tissues. Cells and tissues make organs. Cells, tissues, and organs, we divide them up according to systems, and those are function systems. In the human person, there are 11 systems. Three of them are major vital systems, the circulatory system, the respiratory system, and the nervous system, specifically the brain. There's interdependence of organs and systems to maintain life on Earth. There's no one organ or system that controls all the other organs and systems. The person is created by God. Every person is unique and unrepeatable. The life of the person is the substantial fact, the substance, the fact of the unity of the body and the soul. The definition of the person by Boethius was individual substance of a nature rational. And he wrote it like that. So individual has to do with our existence. The substance has to do with how we're made like God. Nature has to do with the likeness to God, which has to do with how we're supposed to behave. And then there's rational, and you see it's a nature rational, not a rational nature. And people twist those words, but it's individual substance of a nature rational, that is reasoning. And the reasoning is to do good and avoid evil. And doing good and avoid evil is where we form our conscience. And that's where the right to privacy is. Roe v. Wade was not based on a constitutional right to privacy, but a constitutional right to make abortion a private matter between the woman and the doctor throughout the entire nine months of pregnancy, as Joe Scheidler has clearly taught and has been taken a stand for many years. Joe and I are good friends. 
for many years and hopefully complement the work of each other. God creates the soul, the intellect, and will. The soul, intellect, and will are concreated. They're created at the same time for every person. The soul, intellect, and will are concreated. What we do is protect and preserve our life until true death. The Latin words are mors vera. With the gift of life, there are inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The liberty is a special word. Liberty is different from freedom. People twist these things up all the time. You need to know that liberty is rooted in two Latin words. The first one is liber or liberum. The second one is arbitrium. And then they're brought together. And then in Latin, the words are often reversed. So liberum arbitrium is the root of liberty. And what that's translated into in English is mastery over desires. So mastery over desires, that's do good and avoid evil. And so the inalienable right to life comes from God. With that comes the right or the gift of liberty to do good and avoid evil. Mastery over desires, you got that? Mastery over desires. And then it's the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness is not just to have a nice car and a boat and a home, but it's to get to heaven. And these are inalienable rights, inalienable gifts from God, which is different from freedom. Freedom comes from man. So if I rent an apartment, I have the freedom to eat there, to sleep there, have my friends there, but I don't have the freedom to raise chickens. You see, the landlord gives you the freedom, and it comes from man. The liberty comes from God. It's an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Brain death is not true death, and I will tell you more about that as we go along. For organ transplantation, it's only healthy organs that could be transplanted. Who would want a damaged organ? if you're going to get an organ. So it's only healthy organs. Taking vital organs before true death is killing the donor, and it's a violation of an inalienable right to life, as is also to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Life on earth is like a line that you can draw. It has its beginning. We know that a new human life has begun at conception, and that's what that word means, and we know that when there's just one cell in the zygote. When I started and first testified at the legislature in Missouri in 1967, I shared with them things about chromosomes and DNA, and it was easy to take a stand, and abortion did not become legal in Missouri until after Roe v. Wade made it legal throughout the entire United States. But the word conception is the proper word to use. It comes from the Latin parts con, which is with or bringing together. And then sept is like an idea. You must use the word conception to designate that a new human life has begun. A new human life has begun. The conceive is what God does. God conceives us. God creates us. God picks out our mother. 
We should thank God every day for our mother and our father. So they come together, but God creates the person, picks out our mother and father, and then our body is formed. Our body is not created. Our body is formed using what's necessary from the sperm and the egg. And then when this is brought together, already we know that that's a new human person on earth when there's only one cell. And we can know that at conception. It's very important. And then you must use true conception. What I just described is true conception. And there's all kinds of reasons. And if you just look at some of my writings, you can look at renewamerica.com slash columns burn, and you'll see some writings about conception there. You'll see writings about brain death, too. Life on earth is a continuing from conception until true death. And after true death, that's when there's dead. So a living body becomes a dead body by going through true death, and that's the only way. The relationship between the physician and patients is a standard of intrinsic worth. What doctors, nurses do is protect and preserve life. And in modern times, we must defend life. We're not the only ones that protect and preserve life. The policeman does, the school teacher does, the mother does, the father does. How did brain death get started? It started in 1968 when the first heart transplant was done. Some of us that are a little bit older remember that that first heart transplant was done in South Africa. Dr. Christian Bernard did the first heart transplant. Well, what about the second one? Anybody remember the second one? Probably not. When was it? It was three days later. Where was it? It was in Brooklyn, New York. And what did they do in Brooklyn, New York? They cut the beating heart out of a three-day-old baby because he had mental retardation and gave it to an 18-day-old baby who was more entitled to it than the mentally retarded baby. And at the end of those operations, both babies were dead. They were both killed. It was illegal and immoral, and the doctors couldn't stand themselves for doing it. So what they do? They set up a committee at Harvard. That Harvard committee invented brain death. They invented brain death so they could get hearts and other organs for transplantation. The Harvard committee took people who were in coma and said we could now consider them brain dead. There was no proof of true death. The Black's Law Dictionary definition of death, which had to be no circulation, no respiration, and no movement, and no animal or vital functions consequent thereon, that was just discarded, just thrown away. They just threw away a definition that was acceptable in medicine, acceptable in law, acceptable in the world, and they just discarded it and made up a new thing for death called brain death. There's the baby that the second heart transplant was done. And look at him. He was born in Oregon, flown across the United States. He was packed in ice to reduce his... And if you don't know what packed in ice means, go home and put your hand in ice water. Don't do it for too long because it will affect your circulation. Packed in ice is a terrible, terrible thing to do, to pack that baby in ice to reduce his circulation until they could get him over to Brooklyn, New York, to cut his heart out. And you can see he's a very big baby, and he had a right to life. 
just as much as that other baby that they cut his one out heart and gave it to the other one. A few pictures of the, the brain. First, the skull is around the brain, and you see it's very tight. So you see the skull, and then there's the brain inside, and the brain fills the skull. And the skull is hard, and there's no place for it to swell. Over here's another picture of the cortex, the different parts of the cortex. And down here is the cerebellum. Now, in brain death, the only thing that they evaluate is the brain stem. They don't evaluate the cortex, which is the largest part of the brain, because it's primarily a clinical diagnosis. No criteria, and I'll tell you that between 1968 and 1978, there were 30 sets of criteria published, every one less strict than the previous one, and there's many more since that time. And the part of the brain that gets evaluated is this brain stem, the part that's way down here in the bottom. And that's all it gets evaluated. It gets evaluated with brain stem reflexes. And the only function of the brain that's evaluated is the function to breathe. These other parts of the brain, like the cortex, the cortex is what you and I are using now to hear, to speak, to think. And the diagnosis of brain death from the very beginning was primarily a clinical diagnosis and still is. It's not one of sophisticated medicine. And, of course, in a minute... I will show you an example of sophisticated medicine which still cannot make an accurate diagnosis. So it's this way down deep, the brainstem, that gets evaluated. The Harvard criteria was just made up. It was invented. It was concocted. They did no animal studies. They uh, didn't study dogs, rats, cats. There was no patient data. It was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1968, and it was called A Definition of Irreversible Coma. And so what's coma? Coma is like comma. The words are similar. A coma means pause. Living person, pause, and coma wakes up later. They might not wake up, but in coma. And then they did this word called irreversible. But irreversible is one of those words in the English language that you can only know by the opposite. As a doctor, I can observe an absence of the functioning of the brain. I can observe destruction of the brain. I cannot observe irreversible. It's not within empirical science to do that. So they used a word and went ahead from that. Then the second set of criteria was the Minnesota criteria. And, of course, people die every day. Well, their study was on nine patients, and two of the nine still had brainwave activity. And then what they concluded was no longer did you have to evaluate brainwave activity in making a declaration of brain death. And with that, it was thrown out. The British criteria does not do brainwave testing, and that's socialized medicine there. So in the Declaration of Brain Death in Great Britain, they don't do any brainwave testing on any of those patients. And back up one slide to show you this part. The only thing they evaluate is the outer one centimeter of the cortex, even when they do brainwave testing. 
only the outer one centimeter, nothing deeper with brainwave testing. A lot of people think that brain death means flat brainwaves. So first thing is they don't test them, and even if they do, it doesn't give you the information that you would like to have. The NIH criteria is the largest study in the literature, and they reported in 1977 that they recommended for a larger clinical trial, which has never occurred, and it never will occur, because they were not trying to be scientists. They were trying to invent, concoct ways to get organs for transplantation from living persons. Thirty sets of criteria between 68 and 78 and many more since that time. All the way up to the modern times, there are no clearly determined parameters commonly held by the international scientific community. There's no consensus in the criteria, and that's reported as recent as 2008 in the journal called Neurology. And in medicine, in modern times, we doctors are supposed to do things, what they call evidence-based. There's no evidence-based. It's not evidence-based. And it's not Paul Burns saying this. Everything that I say is in the literature. You can read it. Anybody can read it. I'm not telling you anything that, that isn't known to every doctor who wants to look at it. And every person in modern times can look at this. So brain death is, there's no consensus as to which criteria to use. You can be dead by one, but alive by another, or maybe alive by 30 others. But it's only the one that the doctor chooses to use is the one that determines that you're brain dead. And everybody who is declared brain dead has a beating heart, circulation, and respiration. They must have that. Brainwave testing is not required. The action that's taken results in true death. If you don't do something like cut out their organs, they live a long time. Alan Schumann has collected 175 long-term survivors of brain death. A long-term survivor is one that they didn't steal his organs. TK was a patient that I took care of. I wasn't the primary doctor, but I consulted on TK. TK had meningitis at the age of four. And I'm going to tell you about the apnea test in a minute, but his mother would not agree to an apnea test. As his mother said to me, of course I would rather he be riding his tricycle, but I love him. I accept him like he is. She took him home and took care of him. He lived 20 years after the diagnosis of brain death. The last time I saw him, he was not a four-year-old child, but a big 15-year-old child at home. And what makes somebody with brain death die is because they kill him. They kill him. When you cut out the beating heart, they're always dead. You cut out their liver, they're always dead. That's what happens if they need the ventilator to live and you take it away, they will die. And so it's the action that's taken by the doctors that kills the patient. The living person has a beating heart, has circulation, warm. If the living person is on a ventilator, the ventilator pushes the air in. The ventilator does not push the air out. It's the elastic properties of the chest and the lungs that pushes the air out. The only way the ventilator works is in a living person. Respiration is part of being alive and healing. 
Healing is a special attribute, and uh, when you cool the living person, it slows metabolism, and cooling is used to, you, we use it to treat babies with brain swelling. We, uh, it's used to treat people with heart attacks. Well, what about those that are brain dead? They have a beating heart. They have circulation. They're warm. The ventilator pushes the air in, and their body pushes it out. They have respiration, and they heal when they cut on them to make the incision, to put in cut-downs and the like, in six hours they're healed just like everybody else who's a living person. Yes, we leave the stitches in longer, but if you take them out carefully, the tissues are all together, and the cooling does slow metabolism in them too. Well, what about somebody who's truly dead? No heartbeat, no circulation. They get cold. They adjust to room temperature. The ventilator will push the air in, and for a cycle or two, it might come out, but as soon as those elastic properties are lost, all the ventilator can do in the corpse is push it in. It won't come out. If the ventilator is working, that's a living person. And I use the word ventilator. I'll come back in a minute and, uh, about that. But there's no healing in somebody who's brain dead uh, and somebody who's truly dead. When you cut on somebody who's truly dead, that's what we used to call an autopsy. When you cut on them, even if you sew them together, they won't heal. You can come along any time in six hours, in six days, whatever you want. Take out the stitches and it all falls apart. No healing. Healing is part of living. The cooling slows disintegration. That's why morgues and that are kept cold. Now, I want to talk just a minute about ventilator versus respirator. Ventilator means to move air. In this room, air is moved. That's ventilation. The ventilator, we push the air in. Respiration is the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide that takes place in the lungs via the circulation and all the tissues of the body. So the correct term is ventilator. It's loosely called respirator, but remember the two words are different. Ventilation means move air. Respiration is exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. To live on Earth, we must have circulation, must have respiration, oxygen in, carbon dioxide out. We must have water. We must have food. We need the proper temperature of the body, of our body and environment to survive. There has to be an exit for urine and for stool. And there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands of reactions going on all the time of which we know little or nothing for the most part, even no matter how much medicine we know, there's so much that God puts in that we don't know. And these things are all going on. And if we are clever doctors and can put a person on a ventilator and move the air in, that's all we can do. All the rest of it depends on the life and God to make all the rest of the things happen. The beating of our heart. Have you thought about how many times a day our heart beats? How about a hundred thousand times a day? Our heart beats a hundred thousand times a day. And every one of us or something around that number. And we don't do anything to make it happen. And it happens only when we're living. Once you're dead, there's no heartbeat. If it happened to die and have a monitor and a stimulator for the heartbeat, it'll go on, but there won't be any heartbeat. The respiratory system is for respiration. Inhale oxygen, exhale carbon dioxide. Oxygen in, carbon dioxide out. 
The trachea and the lungs are designed for this. The ventilator is a treatment that pushes air into the trachea and the lungs. The elastic properties of the living person pushes the air out. It's effective only in a living person. We're dead without circulation and respiration. We're dead quickly without circulation and respiration. Everybody that's taken a CPR course knows that you have to initiate the support of ventilation and circulation in four to five minutes. If you don't, it won't work, with rare exception. Without oxygen, we're dead in minutes. Without water, it takes one to two weeks. Uh, Terry Schiavo took 13 days. Why did it take 13 days? That's pretty close to two weeks. Why? Because she wasn't an active person. And you and I that are active, it'll be much shorter time without water. And if you want to just practice a little bit about what it's like, go home and don't drink any water for 24 hours and see what happens and see if you can take it longer than that because it's pretty awful. And that's what they do when they take away water from anybody. In one to two weeks, they're all dead. Without food, one to two months until they're dead. You see, life we can know, death is a negative. It's an absence The dead body is without life. The remains are there. Once we go from being alive to being dead, there's continuous dissolution, destruction, disintegration, corruption, decay, putrefaction. There are words to describe this. It can be delayed or slowed by cooling, embalming, or mummification. After true death, morse vera, that's important because the church has always used the word that Latin is the, the language of the church, the official language of the church, morse vera, meaning true death. They had another term called morse appearance, apparent death. And that was to distinguish the two because there's a difference between apparent death and true death or real death. What remains on earth is a dead body, a corpse, a cadaver. The corpse is empty. And empty is a good word to describe the corpse. Where did I get it? When my wife's mother died and we were at the wake at the funeral home, my wife was explaining to one of our grandchildren, Matthew, who the remains was because he didn't know my wife's mother, at least not very well. And as he listened, as my wife explained, that's my mother like your mother, and going on like that as mothers do, teaching their children. Matthew, as he walked away, he said, no matter what, Grandma, she's empty. Yeah. And you know something? We have 12 children, and many, many things I have learned from the children. And children's minds are so clear and so crisp, and they're not all cluttered up with other nonsense. And so it's just an example of one thing that I can tell you about that I learned from that child at that time. True death means being a cadaver. A cadaver doesn't breathe. There's no heartbeat. There's no pulse. There's no blood pressure. There's no circulation. They're unresponsive. They get cold. Their color's poor. They get stiff. And even if they're on a ventilator, the air will go in and it'll expand for a time or two, and then it won't anymore. Once somebody is a corpse, a cadaver, the ventilator won't do anything. It'll just push the air in. It won't come out. Yeah, it won't come out. It's clearly different. I'm going to 
back up here because I want to introduce this next thing. The next thing that you're going to see is a recording from the television. You might have already seen it. It has to do with a young man, Zach Dunlap from Oklahoma, who was declared brain dead, and the helicopter was landing to take his organs. And he happened to have a cousin who worked in the intensive care unit, and the cousin did another test and got a response. And then everything stopped, but everything that stopped was the organ transplantation stopped. And then you'll see Zach after uh, he's being interviewed. And one place in the interview, they ask him, could he hear what was going on? And he said, yes. And they ask him, what did you want to do? He said, I would have liked to have gotten up and thrown him out the window. But he couldn't do anything. And that's, you know, if the people that are called brain dead are not unresponsive and unable to move because of their problem. They are giving drugs that make them so they can't move. Every patient gets those drugs. Every chart that I've reviewed has had those drugs in to make them so that they can't move. Now, there's another thing I'm going to show you. Hopefully, I can... It's a picture. It's an image of his brain. It's a technetium scan. It's more sophisticated than your ordinary CAT scan or MRI. It actually measures the metabolism. It's supposed to be the foolproof test for brain death. And you'll see that he had the foolproof test not only once, but they repeated it and showed no circulation to his brain. And so you'll be able to see that and hear his uh, mother and father. And uh, other interviews show him on the TV and the like. And, of course, if he would have had his organs cut out, he would have been uh, clearly dead. Uh, divine intervention, they use that. And, yes, it can be divine intervention, but the divine intervention was to send the nurse to do one more test. Was it a miracle? No. He was never truly dead. Many people who talk about death, I have my reservations as to whether they're truly dead. I have reservations. On the other hand, when Jesus taught about death, he did it in a way to make sure there would be no confusion. He raised Lazarus from the dead, but that was after three days of putrefaction and the like. And he himself didn't rise from the dead for two and a half days or whatever it is, but sufficient time that it would not be anything except truly dead. Now, I'm going to show you a recording from a textbook on organ transplantation, and it's entitled Multi-Organ Procurement from a Deceased Donor. Deceased, if you look it up in the dictionary, it comes from the Latin word decessus, and what decessus means is departure from life. It means death. And on this recording, you will see the way they begin to do a transplant. The way they begin to do it is they cut from the neck all the way down to the pubis, a big, long incision. This will not last long. For those of you who are squeamish about these, I apologize. But it's very, very important that you see this. You'll see the pericardium, which is the tissues around the heart, be divided, and then you'll see the beating heart in this deceased donor.
he's deceased according to the brain death criteria. See the beating heart. I've shown this to multiple people around the world, very significant people in events of the world. If I told you, you would recognize their names readily. But then when they see the beating heart, then they say, that's what I thought it was. And all of these people that are called brain dead have a beating heart. The beating of the heart is intrinsic to the heart. The heart has its own little brain has its own nervous system that makes the heart beat, and then it turns it off, too. It's fascinating, the nervous system that's in the heart. The heart beats without the brain. The brain can provide some finesse. I want to tell you, in every criteria for brain death, and I told you 30, there's probably 100 different sets of criteria, but they all have one test in them called an apnea test, and it's a pull-the-plug apnea test. It's a patient who's on a ventilator. The ventilator is stopped for up to 10 minutes. The patient is suffocated for 10 minutes. When we breathe, we take in oxygen and carbon dioxide goes out. Even if they give them some extra oxygen some way or another, the carbon dioxide can't go out. That's suffocation. When you suffocate the patient, when the carbon dioxide goes up, the brain swells. It makes them get worse. The test they do contributes to the demise of the patient to makes the patient worse. There's no informed consent. And they take the ventilator away for 10 minutes. Who would ever agree to have the ventilator take it away from their wife or their mother or their son or their daughter for 10 minutes? We take a breath, you know, 20 times a minute. Every two to three seconds, we take a breath. No breath. Not for 30 seconds or one minute. You know, not for two minutes, not for five minutes, for ten minutes, no breath. Go home and try and hold your breath for longer than a minute and see how you do. It's not very pleasant. And can there be informed consent? Who, who would agree to it? They don't tell anybody. And then if the parents do get a hold of me and I talk to the doctor, the doctor says it's the law. Yes, the laws are all set up to get your organs, but there is no law saying they have to do the, ap the apnea test. The patient must prove he can breathe without the ventilator or this is the signal to cut his beating heart out and other organs. The apnea test is not a predictor. It's a lethal action. The relatives must instruct no, no, no apnea test. If you ever hear of anybody with any head injury or anything, you say no, no, no to the apnea test. You must know that, no to the apnea test. Apnea means without breathing. It's a Greek word, without breathing. But, you see, the breathing is supported by the ventilator, and if they need it for whatever reason, you take it away, it suffocates the patient. Donation by brain death is what we've mainly talked about up until now, but they don't wait for brain death anymore. Patients that they want their organs, and they want the organs primarily from people who are 16 to 30. Their life is in jeopardy. And if they have any functioning of the brain, they can't call them brain dead. So what they do is call them, they find a way to call them cardiac dead or circulatory death. So DVD becomes DCD. And what they do is they take away the ventilator and wait till they're without a pulse. And without a pulse doesn't mean without a heartbeat. It means without a heartbeat strong enough to cause a pulse. 
And so without a pulse for sometimes five minutes, sometimes two minutes, in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago, they reported on two babies from Colorado who were without a pulse for 75 seconds. And that was the signal to cut their beating hearts out and give them to somebody else who had a greater lobby for their organs than those poor little babies had. Donation by cardiac death, they get a do not resuscitate. Do not resuscitate order is not a good order for anybody at any time. No one should ever have a do not resuscitate order because a do not resuscitate order either makes you dead or gets you less treatment. And in the laws, at least where I live, do not resuscitate order means comfort care, which means they can't give you even anything to counteract an overdose of narcotic. They can only do things to theoretically make you comfortable, but it isn't that. It's make you get off the earth. So no one should have a do not resuscitate order. They take off the life support. The heart beats, but not strong enough for a pulse for 5, 2, or 1.25 minutes, 75 seconds, and then the organs are taken. We need to distinguish between organs and tissues. The organs that are taken for transplant our heart, lungs, kidneys, liver, pancreas, intestine, they all come from living persons who are declared brain dead or declared cardiac dead. They're never truly dead. They can't be because from a cadaver, there are no organs you can transplant. The tissues from the truly dead that can be transplanted are the skin, the bones, the corneas, the veins, heart valves, and connective tissues. You remember when I told you about cells, tissues, organs, and systems. So differentiate organs and tissues. The cornea, they talk about transplanting eyes. They don't. It's just the cornea, the front part of the eye, the clear part. And there's no need for doing that transplant anymore because now the technique for 20 years has been to take a bit of the cornea from the patient himself or herself, grow it in the Petri dish, and then put it back on, and they have their own cornea. They don't need somebody else's. But they do this as a way to get people to agree to donate anything. The laws are all set up to get your organs. In the United States, the Uniform Determination of Death Act is there. And if you read it, it sounds strong. But in there, it's with accepted medical standards. And it's accepted medical standards to use any one of those 30 or 100 sets of criteria, of which you might be dead by one, but you'd be alive by the other. The death is whatever and whenever a doctor says it is. And if you ask, call any organ procurement organization and ask them, what set of criteria do they use? Do they use the Harvard criteria, the Minnesota criteria, the Japanese criteria, the British criteria? Which set do they use? They'll tell you they do whatever the doctor says. Then the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act has already been passed in 47 of the 50 states in that when death is imminent, the records are sent to the organ procurement organization. They can do measures necessary to ensure suitability of the part. The organ procurement organization can conduct them. In the law, it says any reasonable examination to ensure suitability of the part. Uh, it's presumed intent for donation. In the United States, it's presumed that everyone intends to be an organ donor in 47 states. Who knows when it will be in all 50 states. It's presumed consent for all measures necessary to ensure suitability to living patients. 
in the beginning with the Anatomical Gift Act, you had to be of sound mind to give your organs. That's stricken. So everybody who has mental retardation or something wrong with their mind, their life is in jeopardy. It lacks full and explicit informed consent. Even if you have an advanced directive that says you don't want to be, it lacks full and explicit informed consent. It trumps an advanced directive. You have an advanced directive saying you don't want to be resuscitated. You will be resuscitated. You will be resuscitated until they can determine if they can use your organs. In the beginning, this law said after death you did these things. Now they change it to near death. You know what near death is? Near death is alive. Near death is living. Children, 16, 15 and a half, some states, 14, can donate their organs under this law. If you stop at my booth out there, I will give you a book that has a lot of things written in it, but I'll also give you a card to carry with you. And the card says, I wish to live the lifespan given to me by God. I direct all medical treatments and care, including nutrition and hydration, however administered, be given to protect and preserve my life. Protect and preserve your life. Those are key words. Do not hasten by death. Do not do an apnea test. Do not take any organ for transplantation or any other purpose. And you must have these cards to keep from being an organ donor. We call them opt-out cards. But you also must have these cards because this is how you get treatment. I direct all medical treatments and care be given to protect and preserve my, your life. You must have these things. And what I would recommend as a standard for death is that no one should be declared dead unless there is no respiration, no heartbeat, and no circulation. And then I add to that, and irremediable, which means that somebody tried to resuscitate you. Determined in accord with universally accepted standards, that's different from accepted medical standards. It's universally accepted standards, so it should be the same thing to be dead in Canada as in the United States, as in China, as in Japan. It's the same. This is solidly based medically, ethically, and religiously and unexceptionable. Thank you very much. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Please support this crucial apostolate with your donations, trusting that God is never outdone in generosity. To donate, visit our website, Fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us.